0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on an episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm so excited to be here today with Erica Anderson, who is the founding partner of Proteus, where she empowers executives to drive change. She's also an accomplished author with several bestselling books, including Change from the Inside Out and Leading So People Will Follow. Erica brings a unique blend of expertise to the discussion, focusing on practical insights for effective leadership, change management, and fostering the culture of growth. Well, welcome, Erica. So excited to have you on today.
1: Yes, thanks for that nice introduction. I'm really excited to talk about
0: change with you. Me too. And when we were getting to know each other a little bit, I told you how invested I am in this conversation personally because I'm part of one of the Coast Guards. Talent Management Task Force, the Organizational Change Management and Communications Workstream focusing on changing our culture from a human resources functionality to a a talent management, which is super Mm -hmm. exciting for us, but very different and very daunting. And I think a lot of people view change as daunting. And I'm one of those people who welcomes change, but I've learned over time that's not normal. That's right. What do you say to people that find change scary? And, you know, cause on the last podcast episode that just released and probably this will be many in between when yours actually, (laughs) he he says change is constant and we know that, but we still find change scary. So what do you say to people that they find change scary? Yeah, you're right. You are,
1: you are unusual in that regard that you welcome change. Most people have a hard time with change, especially change that's not their idea, you know, change that's imposed upon them, you know. And in the first couple of chapters of Change from the Inside Out, I talk about why that is. And just to give a little context, if you think about it, until pretty recently, human lives were, to us in this modern age, unimaginably stable, You'd probably be born in the same village or town or city where your parents were. You'd grow up, you'd do the same work, you'd eat the same food, you'd go to the same church, you know, and even the changes were predictable. Somebody has a baby, somebody dies, you know, life was just really stable. And when a change came, it was almost always bad. It was a war or a famine or a flood, right? And so we learned over thousands of years that change is difficult and disruptive. And when it happens, what we want to do is get back to our previous state as quickly as possible. So that's kind of our wiring So now here we are in the 21st century where none of that is true anymore and change is constant. It happens every day, but that wiring is ancient. So when we work with leaders and leaders helping their folks with change, we really try to help them understand that this is not, it's not resistance. It's not people are bad or negative. It's just old wiring and we have to update our wiring so that we understand that change can be easy and rewarding and normal. And that's a lot of what I talk about, as you know, in the book.
0: Yeah, that's some great framing too. That you know, I think first of all that difference between change that is our our idea and change that's not our idea, right? There's yes. a huge distinction between that and recognizing that yes. there can be change that's imposed upon us, which there's a whole different mentality that comes along with that as exactly. well. And I think that might be worth dissecting a little bit when change is imposed upon us. How is that different from change that we take up on upon ourselves? Oh, I love that question. So. And that was one of my core questions
1: when I started writing the book. I always, when I write a book, I'm always trying to crack some codes for people. And I thought to myself, wow, if I can figure that out, if I can figure out what actually happens to us inside of a human being psychologically and emotionally when a change comes at us, right? And how do we go through it successfully? So what we found out is that almost without exception, and I'm sure you can (laughs) recognize this in yourself and your listeners as well, when a change comes at us, the first thing, and we call this step proposed change, we want to know three things, and it's very predictable. We want to know, what does this mean for me, <laughs> right? How is this going to affect me? We want to know, why is this happening? Give me some rationale so that I'll, I'll be motivated to do it, right? Why is this happening? And the third thing we want to know, and this is so important, is what will it look like when it's done? When this change has happened, what will the future look like? Because, you know, when I was researching my book, I discovered that a lot of psychologists think our most of our deepest fear is fear of the unknown. So when somebody proposes a change to you and doesn't tell you what that post-change future is going to look like, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. So that's what people want. That's the first step. Answer those questions for me. Then, and this is what makes it even more complex, because we have this ancient wiring about change as even as we're asking those questions about the proposed change, we generally have a pretty negative mindset about the change. We think that the change is going to be difficult and costly and weird. (laughs) And difficult means I don't know how to do it. And other people are going to get in the way of me doing it. Costly. And this one's really interesting. Costly means that we assume it's going to take from us things we value, right? And not just time and money, but identity and relationships and reputation, right? We're not, I'm not going to be an expert anymore. I'm going to be a novice. You know, we think it's going to take things away from us. And weird just means, oh, this is strange. This is not how things happen around here, right? So even as we're asking those questions, we're assuming in our minds that it's going to be difficult, costly, and weird. So then we notice, and this is where I had my eureka moment. I noticed that when people actually do make a change that's being asked of them, it's almost never because something external changes. It's because their mindset shifts and they start thinking, either on their own or as helped by other people, they start thinking, well, maybe it could be easy or at least doable, right? Versus difficult. Maybe it could be more rewarding than costly. Maybe it could give me more than it takes away. And then, and this is almost the most important, they start thinking, oh, maybe this could be normal. Maybe this could be the new normal. Maybe thinking in terms of talent management versus HR personnel could be normal. And how we decide whether or not things are normal is we look around. And if people who we think of as being like us are doing a new thing, we think, oh, that that's starting to feel normal. And, and this is where leaders come in, if people we admire and want to emulate are doing something, are doing the new thing, are doing something in a new way, we start going, oh, that could be normal. And the almost magical thing is that when someone's mindset has mostly shifted toward, I can see how this change could be easy, rewarding, and normal, then They're willing and able to do the new behaviors that the change requires, but not before then. That's why that mindset shift
0: is so critical. That's so interesting to me. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about this word that we use in the military. I'll say the military because we did it in the Navy when I was in the Navy. Then I switched to the Coast Guard and we still did it in the the Coast Guard. I know what it is. Is it opportunity? Oh, no. I was thinking VUCA. I know it gets used a lot in military. We use this word "opportunity" for basically. I'm about to give you this really hard task (laughs) that's going to mess up your life, and we say (laughs) I've got an opportunity for you. (laughs) But what they're really saying is, I'm going to mess up your routine. I'm going to give you something very challenging, and it requires quite a bit of change because sometimes you have to travel for this, or you have to go do a bunch of stuff and. That, you know, this word opportunity becomes this really dirty word in a lot yeah, of ways so Yeah, yes. it's it's re- It requires a lot of things. And early on in my career, and I was thinking back to kind of evaluating myself, have I always loved change? And I, and I don't know that I have. You know, I've kind of learned that, I've, that mindset that you're talking about, maybe I've adapted over time because I've learned that that word opportunity, it really is an opportunity. It's yes. just a lot of ways how we approach it. And at first I was like, resisting it because I knew like those things that you said are true. It was exactly it was going to cause some heartache, some cause me to, you know, mess that cost was real. Like I was going to lose yeah. some family time or I was going to lose my routine was going to get all out of whack or, or whatever. Uh, but almost always I'd get a new skill or I'd get, or I'd get different rewards with that cost. And so there'd be an investment made on the man. The and that's wonderful, Keith. You know what you just said, is a living
1: example of people who get good at change, who become what I call, what we call change capable. They get good at asking those first questions and then shifting their own mindset. They get good at doing exactly what you're saying. They, they, in effect, they think to themselves, okay, here's this opportunity, you know, here's this change how could it be easy? How could I make it easy? How could it be rewarding? What could it give me? How could I make it normal? They look to shift their own mindset and that's what takes you through change.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. And I think those words, a lot of times, whether it's change or opportunity, whatever our cultural language is in in our work environment, because each organization has their own language, you know, whatever, you know, negative connotations we put on those words. Sometimes if we learn to shift that language, exactly that positive to negative language usage and flip it on its head a little bit, sometimes we can maybe get people a little bit more ready to be a little, I
1: think think that's right. And I, you know, when, when I knew that I was going to be on your podcast and that a big part of it is servant leadership, a concept that I've loved for 40 years, I think a lot about how leaders can serve their people. And I feel like One of the best ways in today, you know, here in this crazy century, for leaders to truly be servant leaders is to become change capable themselves, is to get good at going through change themselves, and then to understand how to help their people go through change. It's kind of like that thing on airplanes when they say, put on your own mask before attempt to help others, right? Yeah. It's like we as leaders have to be good at understanding our own psychology, our own emotional reaction to change, get better at it, and then turn to people. And what I notice is that really good supportive leaders, they don't, I'm sure you've seen this, but leaders who are not good at change, they go through their own change process, and then they turn to their people and they expect them to have already gone through the chain process. Why aren't you where I am now, six months after having heard about this change, right? Yeah. And good leaders realize that their folks are going to have to take the time to go through their own shift the way they have. They're patient. They're supportive, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's so true, and I, you know, going back to that whole word opportunity, yeah, I back to it. And so many times when I was early, why I was so resistant to that word is people would come up and be like, "Man, I'm really sorry, I have to do this to you." So already it's presented as a negative, yes, you know. Whereas in later on in my career, people would already tell me about the benefits, and so they're helping me shift my mindset. Like, yes, Look, this is going to be hard. They would tell me, but yes, yes, but. If you do this well, this is what's going to come out of it. And so yes. they're, you know, they're already setting me up for they're preparing you for not underselling the difficult task ahead, but also telling you exactly. what's going to come out of that and what the rewards are. And we'll also m- maybe take some tasks off your plate and separate some of your current workloads so you don't have to worry about these projects you're already working on. And that's I think what you're talking about in servant leadership is how do I Think ahead of what this person's already yeah. got for them. How do I help them adapt to the change and maybe spread out some of that work if possible? Yeah,
1: that's a great, I love, yes, exactly. That's a, that's a great example. And it's so, two of the things you said are really important. One is that you be honest about the difficulty, you know, because a lot of times leaders try and kind of jolly people along and, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be, it's like, no, it's going to be hard at first, you know, let's be honest about that. And let's do whatever we can to make it as quick and as painless as possible. We're going to work together. I'm going to support you. I think that's exactly right because, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I feel like my partners and I did a really good job of sitting down with the rest of our leadership team and saying, okay, this is not only hard, it's unprecedented. And let's think through where we really need to put our focus to on. And what we decided is we're going to focus on our clients, our people and our business, you know, how, how can we help our clients through this? How can we make sure our people are okay through this? And how can we make sure we don't blow up, you know, that we actually have a business at the end of this. And I remember months later, one of our, our finance director wrote me an email and she said, you know, Erica, you and Jeff and Laird, my partners, you guys were so calm, so honest and so supportive during that time. And it made it so much easier for the rest of us. So I'm basically disagreeing
0: with you. Yeah. No, but it's a great example of how to do that because I think many people can relate to the fact of having people ahead of them in chaos. Now, I've done a lot of emergency management throughout my Coast Guard career, and yeah. I think that's another thing that's made me a lot more change capable because in the emergency management world, you have to learn to be flexible and agile because yes. every emergency is different. Every disaster has its own challenges ahead of it, and that's why I like it because I get bored really easily. And so I like the different challenges that come with that. But what you learn really quickly is that the biggest things that can hamper emergency management is stressed out, overburdened leaders. You need a calm demeanor. You need to come in there ready to work and understanding the skill set, but also knowing that if you're stressed out, if you're overworked, if you don't take time to decompress and manage your own stress, you've just destroyed the whole response. And I think when it comes to change... Like you're saying, you have to set that tone. Well, I think we can all relate that that's much easier said than done. So how do you recommend leaders do that? How do they set that tone to be change capable going into it? It's one of those things that's, it's not
1: complicated, it's simple, but simple doesn't mean easy. And what we found is that knowing this, what I described to you, what we've come to call the changed arc, you know? what those proposed change questions are, those three questions, and then that mindset shift that's required so that people can do the new behaviors and the change can occur. Just the core of that is doing what you do, what you and all people who are good at change do is help themselves through that mindset shift. Because if you come to your folks when you're still like, oh, this is going to be horrible, this is going to be difficult and costly and weird and I don't want to do it, you know, that just leaks all over the place, right? So you have to go through your shift, and if the change is necessary, you got to get your head around it. It's put on your own mask before attempting to help others. Unless you're pretty okay with the change, you're not going to be able to lead
0: and help others be okay with it. Oh, I just love that. Now you talk a lot about in your book overcoming barriers to transformation. So yeah, you know, it's, you're a great leader. And you know that change needs to happen. You know, transformation needs to happen. Like us in the Coast Guard, we're trying to over, undertake this huge transformation. Yes. And the Commandant, she's marching forward. She has great vision. But let's say, you know, not all the senior leaders are on board. And yes. you need all, that, all those senior leaders, you need, that, you need that next layer on board. Yes. What happens when you have, you know, some of your team that are key decision makers that end up being your barriers? How do you attack that? I love that
1: question. So let me let me step back a little bit. So, you know, in the book as you know, I talk about this change arc, which is how individual people go through change, but we also have this five-step change model. I love it because it aligns with this change arc. I think of this five-step change model as like dropping a stone into a pond. It's bigger and bigger circles of people as the process goes on, you're engaging more and more people, which is what you're talking about. So, the first step of the process is just clarify the change and why it's needed. And usually, usually there's a, like with your commandant and you and a few other people, usually there's a small group of people who start a change, who initiate a change. They're the ones who think about, somebody thought to themselves, we're too old fashioned in our HR practices. We have to really think in a 21st century town. Somebody thought about that, right? And they start thinking about, okay, what what is that change? Why do we need it? Right? Yep. And then step two is, to that point of people having fear of the unknown, envision the future state. What would it look like if we were more talent management focused versus HR or personnel focused? And it's usually still this small group thinking about it. Then when you're pretty clear about what the change is, why it's needed, what it'll look like when it's done, then step three we call build the change. And that's when you start thinking about who are the stakeholders, who are the people who are going to need to be supportive of this, and who's the team who actually is going to drive it? is it us or do we need to create a change coalition of some kind? And what is the change? That's where you do both the human part of it and the kind of project management part of it. You define how the change will actually unfold, what it will imply, what does it mean for the people who are working in HR, right? So you create a change plan and you start bringing in those stakeholders. You figure out where they are. Are they are they against it right now? Or are they for it right now? Or are they somewhere in the middle? Where do we need them to be? How are we going to buddy up with them to communicate what we've already figured out, you know, what the change is, why it's needed, how it's going to look. So during that step three, you get it all built kind of, right? And then step four is what we call manage the transition. And that's, and this is that integration I talked about at the beginning. You start implementing the change plan, but you also figure out and this is critical Keith and most people don't do this how is this going to affect the people who will be most affected by it so in the change that you're talking about the hr people will be the most directly affected their jobs will change right so you think about what's ending for them what's beginning for them what's the change going to be for them and how can we best support them through it as human beings to help them make that mindset shift so as you're, you know, finalizing the practical plan, you create a human plan to go along with it. How are we going to help people mentally and emotionally through this change, especially the ones who are most effective? What tools are we going to give them? Right. And yeah. then you implement the change plan and this, is what we call the transition plan, the human plan at the same time. So that while you're asking people to do different things, you're also giving them the why and helping them shift their mindset right? And that's what doesn't happen. A lot of times it's like, we're doing it now, but everybody's freaked out, right? Nobody's gotten that support to make the change. So if you do that fourth step, well, the fifth step, which is called keep the change going, you know, because you've done this for a long time, every change has unintended consequences. So no matter how well you plan, it's not going to turn out the way you think it's going to. So you can't just walk away. You have to stay in it, right? And the cool thing about this is if you've really connected people, you can use their voices. You can rely on them to tell you what's working and not working. And when they say this part of it isn't working, you don't dismiss it. You say, great, help us make it work. And then they buy in even more, right? So then the change much more likely to be successful. You have a lot more credibility. So then when the next change comes a month later, (laughs) People are much more feeling like, oh, these guys kind of know what they're doing. I'm cool with this,
0: right? Yep, yep. I love it. And that was a good truth check because we, you know, we're doing some of this stuff well. So I, uh, I hope the team listens to this. Okay. That was a good uh, truth check for us. Uh, definitely, uh, as always, there's some stuff we could work on, but that was a good truth check. And one of the things that step five, we're already talking about our communications plan and how, you know, first of all, how we're going to communicate this out to the whole. Yes, team. yes, yes and then how we're going to get feedback back. Because that feedback cycle yeah. is so important that you're talking about. And our commandant talks about in the service, we have what she calls the frozen middle. And maybe some other organizations can can relate to this. And basically the frozen middle being people that that just are stuck. They don't want to change. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily want, want to grow. They want to be exactly where they're at and it, there may not be a lot of organizational trust in them yes. right now. And one of those groups, not just our HR department, that we've identified as completely invested in our this talent management task force that's kind of unique to a military service is our assignment officers because we move people around so much. Mm-hmm, so yeah. we know that, that that assignment officer process with our both our officer enlisted workforce that they're going to be drastically impacted by this process yes, yes. from human resources to talent management. And so we understand that that frozen middle has low trust, but if we can get them on board with this talent management transformation and we can get the same messaging and get them unified, we can also increase trust and also do things that bring... Impact their job in a way that helps. Yes, ooh, ooh,
1: let me. Let me I, I want to help you, uh, as I always want to yeah. help people.
0: No, I, that's why I brought it up. I was hoping for that.
1: <laughs> okay, so the frozen middle describes lots of in lots of organizations. There are chunks of the organization that are particularly stuck, and so over time, we've discovered that there are four and we call them change levers, you know, levers in the sense of force multipliers. Four things you can do to help especially stuck people through change. All right, you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So the first one, I love this one, it's so simple and so powerful. The first one is increase understanding, cuz lots of times in organizational change people are just told do it. They're not told why. They're not given context. It's like, why is this happening? How do we come to this? What do we think it will do to benefit you? Just, you just increase people's understanding about the change. First of all, it really helps unstick people because it's real information, but also it's very respectful. Lots of times in organizations, people don't get that kind of information because it's just like you're a cog in a machine. And so when you give people the respect of giving them all the attendant information, it feels really good. So that's thing one. Thing two, this is really important, is clarify and reinforce priorities. Because lots of times when there's a big change, people kind of flip out and think everything's changing. And so if you can say, no, 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 your priorities are primarily the same. We still, assignment officers, want to make sure that the right people get to the right place at the right time. That is not changing. Now, There may be some changes about how we go about doing that. There may be some new skills you need to learn. So it gives them uh, a framework for understanding the change that it's not going to ruin their whole lives. It's just, there's going to be a couple of things, but primarily their priorities are staying the same. That's incredibly soothing to people, right? (laughs) All right. The third lever, and I love this one, is give control. One of the main reasons people hate change, especially people who are kind of stuck, is they feel kind of victimized, It's like it's all being done to them. So whatever you can do to give control to people in change, whether it's give them a voice, right, ask them for feedback, operationalize their suggestions, give them a choice about when they do something or how they do something or if they do this or this, whatever you can do to give people more control in the change. That's incredibly helpful, right? Yep. And then the last one is give support. And this one's important because the, especially in the initial stages of a change, the most important kind of support you can give somebody is just to listen to them. Because lots of times in leaders, we try and convince or persuade or dismiss or reassure. No, if people are worried, what they need first is just to be heard. So if somebody, and man, good leaders, if somebody comes to you in a change and goes, I hate this. It's stupid. Why can't we do everything the way we've done for the last 30 years? And your first response is, wow, this really doesn't seem like a good idea to you. You're not agreeing with them. You're just listening to them. It's so powerful. And then they go, yeah, yeah, it really doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Okay, man, that's rough because we kind of got to do this. So how do you think, you know, and then a real conversation starts, right? So the first thing is just listen through their concerns. Because if you do that, they almost always come to a kind of resting point And then they're ready for the other kinds of support, new tools, mentors, new ways of processing, new workflows. But if you try and give them those tools, those support tools before you've really heard their concerns, they're just going to reject them, right? So there's an order to the support. Listen first and then provide all the other kind of support that you have lined up.
0: Oh, that's just wonderful. And I think that's a valuable skill set in so many regards, not just change yeah. management. I think yeah. that we can employ in just whenever our people come to us with a concern. I think too often we 100%. try to solve that concern before we really even understand it so yes that was valuable input i kind of chuckled when she was saying it because i was like oh my goodness we need to hear this more than probably any of that other device even though that other sounds so uh, i love it you know i should give credit where credit's due admiral Panoyer is the leader of this whole talent management task force and he's doing a phenomenal job i'm just on a small part of this one of the one of the work streams but i've just loved everything of it and i Mm. i can't wait to air this episode because there's already some tangible good advice on it And, and you know I love this, this thing that you talk about in making sure the human side is connected to the mechanical side. Yeah. I recently had a conversation with a really good friend of mine, who's just an amazing project manager. And I was, he was talking to me about a concern with one of his employees that did IT and, you know, we were having some questions and then just dawned on me. I asked a question, I go, have you recently switched from, um, your project management system from like a Six Sigma to an agile system or something like that? He, and he was like, yeah, we have. And I go, okay, first of all, that I go, I would actually start to look at this as a skill or a will problem because if some people are very systematic in their thinking. And if you switch to an agile system, this might actually be a skill issue And they might not be real comfortable with an agile. Oh,
1: I love that, Keith. And it's probably both. It's probably skill and will. I'll I'll give you a really good example of, I think we did this well at Proteus. So right around the beginning, it was in twenty. maybe right after the pandemic started, we, we really started to focus on security and data, you know data security and privacy and how we keep information from our clients, coaching clients or consulting clients. And we it was a huge shift. And we realized we were going to have to get people to not do things on paper and do it in encrypted like in Google Docs and stuff. Huge change. So before we actually started requiring people to make the changes and even give them the directions to make the Changes. We spent a lot of time on the human side of it. How are you? What do you guys think about this? And what's it going to require? And how hard do you think it's going to be? And what are the difficulties? And tell us your concerns. And helping them through their mindset shift so they could see it as not as difficult as they thought, more rewarding than costly, more normal than weird. We spent a couple of months just getting everybody on board. Then provide the skills. Then do it. And the doing of it was easy. You know the the actual changing, doing a doing a change. The mechanical part is often not that difficult. It's just it's made difficult by
0: not preparing people well, right? Oh, that's so true. I mean, people get paralyzed by that worrying about, the format, worrying about if they're going to do something wrong. Exactly. So taking that time to get people comfortable once the change happens, that's valuable. Yes. I, I love that you did that because then yeah. you don't have to worry about those little nuances of format or systems, you know, and exactly. then people are on board and that's just a nice way. That's a beautiful representation of servant leadership because you put the people first yes. and then you take the change and that's the system. And then it's an easy way to implement that change. And I, I think I've seen very few examples of that in my world of work. And I think that would make change so much easier to accept. Absolutely.
1: I I mean, I feel like a big part of the reason change has such a bad name organizationally and why it feels so exhausting is because it's not set up well. We don't, back to the beginning, what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation, people don't think through and prepare for the human side of change. How do you make people? comfortable how do you help them through that mindset shift so that when the new behaviors are required they're psychologically emotionally and on a skill level ready to do them
0: you know that that's a perfect example when we i think the world is growing you know more accustomed to talking about psychological safety but i think in so few cases we actually understand what that looks like even when yeah. we talk about it and that's a perfect example of an environment that has increased psychological safety is when we're like We think about, okay, this is going to be hard for people. So let's just practice this new system. And it's a lot safer because people are like in a non-attributional environment are like, this is kind of clunky. Or at least you let me show it. Like, I think about we just switched our GIS systems. And all of a sudden, they were like, hey, we're gonna turn off the old GIS system. And a month later, we're gonna turn on the new GIS system. Everybody's freaking out. Like, <laughs> like exactly. We, we just learned how to use the old one. one exactly. We just learn how to use the new one. And, and I think about what you just said, and I'm like, that takes all that complaint away. That takes all that fear away. Exactly. It's so much easier. And if
1: you if you give people a chance to get, you know, get their heads around it, that's really what it is and make that mindset shift. And then I love your point about psychological safety. And part of that is saying to people, yes, you are not gonna be as good at this at first as you were in that old thing that you were expert on. That's okay. We're going to have some dry runs co- first couple months. We're going to safety net it. You know, just whatever you can do to reduce all those all those fears of change, you know?
0: Yeah, I love it and kind of going to your point, when I volunteered to be part of this organizational change management and communications team, they said, "Hey, we understand that a lot of you might not have training in this, so we're going to get you some training in nice change management and you'll even get a certificate." And like right away you had people like, okay, I'll volunteer now <laughs> like, how much and some training with that. I mean, that's a yeah. conversation yeah. at that point. And I, I think too often we're like, Oh, I'll just do this and learn it as you go. And yes. it's the opposite helps out so much more yes. like, okay, I can feel comfortable and I can now look better and look more like an expert and not worry about failing in front of my peers or even. The
1: Precisely. People- I don't feel like I'm kind of making this up as I go along. I have some skills. I feel like I can help people. Yes. Totally, I
0: hundred percent agree with you. I love it what What are some other common missteps that happen in change that leaders should look out for and serve their people better?
1: You know, I really think we've covered them if if you had if you said to me, Erica, what are the three things to really look out for as a leader? The first one is put on your own mask before attempting to help others. really think about yourself, read the change. Are you capable of making this change? Do you feel like this change is necessary and okay? You know, where are you mentally and and emotionally about this change? So I think that's the first one. You can't help other people unless you're in a pretty good space. A second one is the one that you picked up. Just listen deeply. Concern about change is natural. It's how we're wired. And the very best thing you can do is just listen. Listening is such a respectful response If somebody says to you, because they're going to be, if somebody works for you, they're going to be nervous to come to you and say, I think this is a bad idea or I'm really worried about this. And if your response is, wow, so you're, you're very concerned. Tell me more about that. It's like, oh, such a relief, right? So listening is the, is the second one. And the third one is just see it all the way through on both the human side and the mechanical side. Don't drop the human side and don't stop in the middle.
0: Go all the way through. All right. I love love that last one because I've seen it where people are like, oh, this isn't working. We have to stop or people start to lose buy-in. And so that's a great point. See it all the way through. So when you get to that lag point or people start to waver, how do you help people bridge them through or pick up that? you know, the flag, if you will, and start to say, no, yeah. we can do this, we can carry through and keep that motivation going when, you know, fear starts. I love that, going that question, Keith, and I think the the
1: primary answer is to get curious instead of kind of boosterish. So if people are trying to say, I'm not sure this is working, rather than just kind of defaulting into John Wayne mode, no, it's great, keep the flag up, you know, get curious, like, oh, okay, let's let's meet, come together, what isn't working? Okay, how can we address that? Remember what the goal is. Where are we? What do we have to change? Are there some things we need to do differently? So curiosity is wonderful because it's also very respectful. You get people's best thinking and it gets them to start to feel like owners, right? If they're just standing there going, yep, that building's burning down. That's not helping anybody. But you say, well, so what? Do we need buckets? Do we need water? How are we going to keep this thing from burning down? And there's something about human beings when they're called like that with curiosity, they start going, Well, I guess we could.
0: I got a hose, you know? <laughs> I, I love that. And I talk <laughs> to a lot of people about, you know, changing the mindset of meetings where we just dictate information to more of a council setting where we yes. try to get the inputs of everyone. And yeah. one of the things as I've done that that I've noticed is not everyone's willing to give their input. But I've seen so many people walk out of that meeting and talk about how that idea is going to fail. And I'll call people out on them. If you're willing to say your opinion outside the meeting, but not in the meeting, yes, I'm setting everyone up for failure. And what are your thoughts on that? How do we get people to be part of the change mindset and not wait till they walk out of the meeting to be a proponent for change failure?
1: Yeah, that is a deep question. And I could talk about that for a whole other hour. But two things I would say is one, there's some there are some people who need a little, you know, some people can just wing it like you ask their opinion, and they'll say right away, some people need lead time, they just do. That's how their brains are wired. So if you're going to ask an important question in a meeting, send it out beforehand so that the people who need some lead time will have that lead time. And then they'll be more likely to you know, contribute when they're in the meeting. So that's thing one. Second thing is that you as a leader, I as a leader, we have to make it really safe. It's back to psychological safety to contribute. Like I'm sure you have been in meetings in your life where, where the leader says, okay, I want all your ideas. And the first idea out of the person's mouth here, she goes, that's a dumb idea, some version of that's a dumb idea, or that won't work, or we already tried that. Then what? what's that message? Everybody's like, okay, I guess I'm not really supposed to say anything. So you have to make it as safe, as welcoming as possible. If somebody says an idea that doesn't seem like a good idea to you, you say, tell me more about that. I don't understand how that's applicable. You just keep the ball in the air, right? So if people have some lead time, and if they
0: are demonstrated to that it's safe to contribute, more and more people will contribute. Yeah, I agree. And another thing that is even, even more common, I think, than someone convincing someone that their idea is dumber is getting defensive of why that idea yeah. hasn't been tried in the past. And I think people don't realize how much that kills the conversation. Oh my God. And I, I really want to bring that up because it, it just kills ideas right out the gate that being defensive And so as leaders, I want to challenge us that we have to, if our propensity is to get defensive, we have to bury that and learn.
1: Man, that is a really good insight, Keith. I often, in the past, when I've coached leaders who are defensive, I say, okay, when somebody says something to you and you feel that defensive reaction, just insist to yourself (laughs) that you do one of two things. You either ask a curious question or you summarize what they're saying that those are your only possible responses. You can't get defensive. So if you ask a curious question, wow, I'd love to know more about that, or wow, help me understand why you feel that way. Just a curious question or you say, okay, so you're, you're thinking that we didn't do last year what we should have done around that. Yes. if though For some reason, I don't really quite understand the psychology of it, but if you, rather than getting defensive, if your first response is curiosity or summary, It kind of breaks your own defensive response and then it can become a conversation.
0: That is so profound and I love it. And I want to use that for the challenge on this episode. So I think there's so many challenges we could have given because Eric has given us so much great insight. But I think that of all the things we've talked about for all of us, I invite you to spend time, practice making curious questions. Yeah. think about all the things you're given and turning that insight back into a curious question, whatever it is. So think about how you respond to people. And when they come to you with anything, think about how you could respond back to them with a curious question. And I think no matter whether we're dealing with change management, whether we're dealing with anything, when we learn to ask better curious questions, we're just going to be better servant leaders all around. So I think as you listen to this episode, even think back on this or listen to it again and go back through it. How could you approach these topics with more curiosity? And Hmm. as you do that, you're going to be filled with greater insight in how you do approach the people around you. And I just love that. So as we do that, how do you support the leaders around you as they go through transitions?
1: Well, I give them all this information that we, I mean, we, we, you know, when we are doing a big transformation, like some of our clients are huge multi-billion dollar clients going through these enormous transformation. And, and what we find is the, that these simple profound thing, the two, the two things, the understanding this change arc, how individuals go through change and then having this five-step change process are just such great tools. And then I cannot tell you how much I love what you just said about curiosity because the, a curious mindset about change overcomes so much negativity.
0: I love that. A curious mindset overcomes negativity. And she said it so much more profoundly, but I love <laughs> My mind has to transform things into simple thoughts. Yeah. So I just love it. And there's so much depth there about that curiosity combating negativity. And I just love that thought. And uh, do you have any examples that you could call upon, like as you've seen that in your world working with change management, of someone that you saw overcome a negative obstacle through curiosity?
1: Hundred percent. There's a there. So I I won't tell you what company, what yeah, people, absolutely. but there was. I saw this wonderful woman who's a CEO who I've coached for a long time. She had one guy on her team who was kind of. I'm sure you know these people. She was. He was kind of an Eeyore. You know what I mean? He just was always kind of a downer and things aren't going to work and everybody's going to die, you know? And so they were having to go through this. It was a media company and they were having to go through this huge transformation. Everybody was struggling through it, but getting their heads around it. And, and, you know, this is really going to be different, but I think so. And he, he was such a bummer. He just kept like, I don't think, and I, and finally she turned to him and I thought she was going to get mad at him, but she just got curious his name was Dave. She turned to him and she said, Dave, what's the thing that's most upsetting to you about this? And it just was like a dam breaking open. It just, he was able to say that he was worried that his team wasn't going to make it. And he, he thought that they were going to be at the five. It was, just, and she just listened, listened, listened. And, 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 you know, he talked for like five minutes and the whole team was very quiet because this wasn't like him, you know? And she said, well, I feel completely committed to your team and we're going to do everything we can to make sure they make it through this. And it just, it, I, it was like, I gave me goosebumps. It just shifted the whole room. And all she did was ask that one curious question.
0: Oh, that's a beautiful example. And it just goes to show that power of curiosity. Yeah. You know, so often we make these flash judgments of the people around us and their yeah. of commitment to the project. And yeah we can be so wrong. Like this is a perfect example of that. And when we make those flash judgments and we're wrong, we limit our ability to succeed in whatever our goal is. And if we just take the time to be curious, we can bring the full team to their fullest potential. And that's, the power of servant leadership yeah
1: that's exactly right i mean when i said before that curiosity especially curiosity about change is so powerful to combat negativity and a lot of the negativity combats is in our own minds of those exactly what you're saying those limiting assumptions we make about other people about the situation about our own capabilities and when we instead go huh i wonder if
0: i wonder what why is that it just shifts the whole vibe you know Oh, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to re-listen to this one over and over again. This is going to be my, my motivational mantra whenever I, I need to pick me up. Erica, you've just given me so much profound things to think about. You gave me some applicable motivation on my current project. you give me applicable life motivation. I, I can't thank you enough for this wonderful conversation. And uh, as we wrap up today, any closing thoughts to, to close us out with today on this episode?
1: more hopefulness. One of the things we've found is that becoming change capable is a learnable skill. And that's, we always try to tell people if they feel overwhelmed by change, well, we're all rewiring ourselves and you, you, I, anybody can get better at going through change. We can become more fluent with change, which is what we need now, right? But it's not like some people are good at it and some people are bad at it. It's a developable skill, which I think is really
0: helpful for people to know. Mm, that that's just such a wonderful thought that it's a developable skill we can all acquire it well erica thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the all might be edified discussions on servant leadership thanks so much for all of you listening and i hope you all have been edified because i truly have been edified and i hope all of you are prepared to be more change capable and that you're prepared to be more curious in your lives and have a wonderful day